imagine sitting in the park in the heat Stomach empty, starving to eat Palms are sweaty, heart starting to beat About to get beheaded cause you didn't take the mark of the beast Bill Gates doesn't care about black teens He's trying to alter our DNA by giving us vaccines These elite Satanists are the psychoists They preparing our bodies to accept the microchip Can you imagine walking into a Wells Fargo Not being able to withdraw money because you ain't got a barcode your right hand or your forehead if you don't take the mark of the beast you're gonna fall to the floor dead head cut off bodies squirming our own government acting like nazi germans they want us to live in fear filled with uncertainty one world government under one currency i can categorically say that this is end times this virus is breaking us down just like an enzyme there's pedophiles leaving men and women childrenless these politicians are dummies and the devil's a ventriloquist Stemming from Epstein's Island Gavin Newsom ain't your governor He's a tyrant He took away everything That makes us happy and vibrant And put a mask on us To keep us silent Can you imagine sitting in the park in the heat Stomach empty Starving to eat Palms are sweaty Heart starting to beat About to get beheaded Cause you didn't take the mark of the beast Bill Gates doesn't care about black teens He's trying to alter our DNA By giving us vaccines These elite Satanists Are the psychoists to accept the microchip. Yo, Josh, thank you for your service. Salute. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Josh and Jason Monday Christian and Conspiracy Podcast Show. I am your host, Josh Monday. And if you don't know me, I'm a Christian rapper, devoted husband, father, and army veteran. And I'd like to introduce you to my co-host. He's a football coach, a devoted husband, and Christian. What's going on, Jason? What's up, man? Yes, this mustache is not a glue-on. It's not a uh, <laughs> it's not a disguise. I try to keep myself disguised. So let's go. We're getting let's in see. too much. We're digging in too much stuff today. Oh, so with glasses. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this, that's why he doesn't have his name there. Yeah, yeah. I put my name just splattered on the uh, splattered on the uh, the intro. But okay, so guys, we have a very special. Guest for you today. He's a uh, author of Genesis Six. Uh, he's also a Genesis Six conspiracy, and he's working on uh, a couple sequels to the book. Uh, one sequel to the book, and, and a few others. Uh, and and I've heard him in several different podcasts, and he's been crushing it. How you doing, Gary? Or Gary Wayne? Am- sorry, <laughs> sorry, Gary. I no problem. I am so happy to be here, and uh, looking forward to the discussion today. And. Yep, I am working on a sequel, and I also have a more prophetic book that I'm working on that involves Second Exodus and the end time, and Mm. how that comes about beginning with the Holy Covenant. So I'm going to walk through the Lost Tribes and bring all of that through to an end time sort of scenario. And the sequel to the Genesis 6, which I'm hoping to get to the publisher towards the end of the year, maybe early into January, uh, is going to be material that I haven't really covered in the first book and it's going to be more biblical and it's going to be essentially it's going to be the Genesis 6 conspiracy but I think that's going to be the subtitle will be part two and I think I'm going to call it prehistory and prophecy because there's just so much information in the Bible about giants that people don't even know that's there and then to make that connection as to how it's all part of the fallen angelic rebellion and how that affected our history from a biblical perspective and how it's why and how it's important to understand end time prophecy so you have a better idea 
what's going on right now and what's going to be coming about. Well, I, I have a question. I have one question before you go, Josh. What got you into studying this and getting into the actual nitty gritty of it? Because just reading the Bible, you can read it and, and some people won't understand the text. Some people will understand the text. And then, you know, like some people will understand it, understand it, and then really want to dig into it. Sure. I just want to know how you got started on that. Well, I think two points on that that you're talking about. The one is kind of a manifestation of how I got involved on it. But when I decided I was going to research the Bible, and I'll tell the story how I got there in, in a minute, I didn't want to read the King James Version Bible because it made my mind go to mush and the language wasn't there uh, for me. And, and so when I want to read the Bible in an easy manner, I'm going to read an NASB or NIV or an Access Bible or one that is in today's language so that I can understand it. As I really got into the research, I expanded to using about six different translations so I could understand what everybody was talking about, try and get the whole meaning. And, and I started to get back into the King James Version Bible through the research because then I needed to get in behind the words. I needed to get to the original Hebrew and into the original Greek. And that for me was best done through the language that's being used that's a little bit more archaic in the King James Version, like, you know, terms like dragons and that. What are they talking about dragons? I'll take that back and see what they're actually talking about that. So, that's how I got through the, the ability to, to read with ease because I, I went at it at first through a more modern translation. Now, what happened uh, after I got to be a teenager is I walked sort of away from the church and with the peer pressure and having fun and the education and the brainwashing and everything else that was going on. I was just out there having fun and I didn't want to have anything to do with church or anything like that. So I basically left and started to believe in evolution. And when I think I was 20 or 21, my brother was over and he had a friend and we we're tossing back the beers on a Friday evening. And I don't know, late into the evening, one of them says, you know, how brave are you? I said, what do you mean? I said, well, do you have courage? I said, well, I think I do. So like, why would you ask me a question like, like that? And they said, well, if you've got the courage, you should, we're going to challenge you to read a book. Both of them had read it. And they said, we're not going to tell you a whole bunch about it. But they started talking about things like, you know, antichrist and false prophet. And I'm going, okay, I think I remember something a little bit about that. And so I took up the challenge and it scared the socks off of me. <laughs> and so, uh, and the book was called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, who was way ahead of his time. So that tells you maybe how old I am because, I mean, he wrote that in the 60s or 70s. And this, I think it was 19, maybe 80, uh, when 81 or so when that challenge happened. And so, but I'm a contrarian by nature. And so I wanted to understand was Hal being accurate? Um, was he embellishing? Was that actually in the Bible? And so I thought, well, I better get out a Bible and I better start to, to look some of these things up. And then I found that those prophecies that he was citing, it looked like it was genuine to me, like he wasn't manipulating 
scripture. So then I thought, well, I really need to get into this because if this has, you know, if it's 50% true, I mean, this is something <laughs> I need to know about, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever that percentage is, that sort of gets you over to, but I was scared at this point. So I needed to know, and, I, and I'm obsessive. So I went back to my brother and I said, you know, I want to research this in, in a way that makes sense to me, but the King James Version Bible just makes my mind go to mush <laughs> in about five minutes. And I know a lot of people can read it with ease. I can. Um, so he said, well, try the new international version. And so that's the one that I bought. And that's how I came back to Christ. And that's how I started my research. Uh, and so I started to read the whole Bible. And after reading it once, I thought, wow, there's a lot in here. And there's just too much to understand, but I want to learn about prophecy. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to reread it again. And then I'm going to start logging down in handwritten files, all of the passages that have different prophetic uh, narratives to them. And there's many narratives in prophecy. So there's a lot. So it, it took all of a sudden, I went from a small little filing system to a monster system, because there's just so many different narratives that stream through prophecy and interweave with each other. So you have to make those cross references as well. But very early on in that, I came across in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, something that was just crazy. You know, it was about the sons of God going to the daughters of men and they created giants. But it was called Nephilim. But it was Nephilim. Can I read it real quick so everybody can hear it? Because I didn't really get to do a verse at the beginning. So we got Genesis 6. Now it's uh, this is going to be the new King James version. Okay, guys, so it scrambles my brain too sometimes with the King James. So now it came to pass when man began to multiply on the face of earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves for all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with ma with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be numbered to 120 years. Uh, there, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were old men of renown. So that's what we're speaking of, guys. Yeah. So, go yeah. so I get to this thing, Genesis 1 through 4, and it's talking about in the NIV version, not doesn't use giants. It used the word Nephilim. I'm yeah. going what the heck is that? Well, I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. So I, I just <laughs> ignore it, right? That's, uh, but then, you know, I research it a little bit further and it's nagging me. So I, I start researching what are Nephilim and I'm finding out they're giants and I'm going, oh boy, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not ready for this stuff. So I'm just going <laughs> to stick on what I'm going to do. And then I keep logging and researching. And you know, by the time you get into you know, not too far on and into the time of Abraham and uh, the Exodus, you're getting giants all over the place, right? By different names and things and different peoples that I couldn't, some, a lot of them I couldn't trace back to the table of nations. I'm going, well, is the Bible that inaccurate or am I missing something? So then what I thought what I should do, and it was well after this, because it was troubling me, but I thought I'll continue on. So then I decided I need to not only log what's going on with prophecy narratives, but I need to log on what angels are all about, put those in files, what demons are all about, put that in the file, log 
the different kinds of peoples that I can't find in the table of nations and the Nephilim and the giants and other giants um, and put them in it. And so that's what I did. And then after I did that, then I started to write just sort of connecting verses and I created binders full of hand typewritten at the time, uh, prophecies, prophecy narratives. So I could string sort of like a story together, not in a, in a novel form or anything like that, but just so that I could understand it. And then I thought, you know, I've got 12 or 15 books here I could write. <laughs> and <laughs> so I thought, well, but I'm a nobody. I don't even have a university education. Um, but I want to see whether or not I can actually write a story. And if I wrote that story, could I get it published? And if I could get it published, would anybody even read it? And if some people read it, would it sell enough to even be worthwhile doing? So I thought I would write a short book. That was the plan. I'm so na I'm so naive at times. <laughs> and so yeah. I wrote the I wrote the first ten chapters quite quickly because it was basically sort of biblical based, and I was just sort of getting it, you know, getting it done in in a way that sort of made sense sense to me without getting too detailed on it. And then I thought, you know what? When I grew up, I was a real uh, fan and almost obsessed with history and with mythology. And I thought, you know what? I know there's a whole bunch of connections here that other people haven't really made sense of or connected it properly to what is written in, in the Bible. And a lot of what's in those mythologies is what I like to call a parallel story or knockoff, your choice, of what's in the Bible. But discussed and described in stories around the world in all cultures around the world through a polytheist lens mm. about the same events so but just and we, so, we so oh i'm sorry so, i'm sorry Gary. i was just gonna I'll, I'll wrap this up pretty quick so no, ahead, when i when i did that it led me into i had to learn about the religions and uh, that led me into the mystery schools and then that's brought out the secret societies when you dig into mm -hmm. that and then i went down rabbit holes for another 10 10 years or so just <laughs> figuring that it out and saying how am i going to get this in the book so that's how i started so it turned out to be a published book of over 800 pages and i took out 350 to 400 pages so just to get it published and mm -hmm. uh, so that's sort of how i came about it and so i'm a prophecy buff yeah. my first passion now and but i'm still a mythology and a history buff as well yeah we uh me and my brother are both uh chuck missler listeners so uh he does the same thing that you're you were talking about like where he took where he's where he's kind of cross-referencing these other like um you know with uh the greek and 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 greek gods like mating with humans and all this different stuff so it's interesting that you were doing that i i think uh it's so cool how you were just digging in, and I like how you were were listening, like uh, reading different versions, so that you can come to your own conclusion. You know, I think some people just stick with one, so I think it's cool to listen to 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 read different versions of the Bible. I think that is pretty smart to do, so you can kind of come to your own conclusion of what it's actually saying. You know, because it is tough for some people to just jump into the King James version. I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, um, as far as the secret societies, like like how. Do you want to kind of kind of go into that and um and how that connects to the the giants and 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 how how they they connect to the the fallen angels and all that? Is that okay? Sure. It's a, it's a big topic. So feel free to jump in anytime or 
I, you want to say, let's get some more information on that, or I want to ask the question because I have some questions uh, on all the secret society yeah. stuff for sure, man. And yeah, really, so, good, really good at this. So yeah, let's the, go. The first, the first thing is that when we're talking about secret societies, people sort of look at secret societies as we understand it today. And so Freemasonry would be a secret society that people would know in the Illuminati and the Rosicrucians. And then as you get into it, you start learning a little bit more about some of these other ones. And you're not sure how they fit in. It could be the Bilderbergers, it could be Bohemian, it could be the Club of Rome. It could be these thousands of other types of organizations. And you've got Lions Club and you've got just, there's just endless sort of orders. And, and you know, how does that sort of fit in? Is it just sort of an old boys club or whatever? What we're seeing is a manifestation of something today that was created even before the flood and an organization that crossed the flood. And so to learn about secret societies, you have to understand how that fits with fallen angels and you have to understand how that fits with the giants. And so if you're not accepting giants, well, you're probably not going to accept what the secret societies believe about it as well, but that's fine. Um, but to understand that, it's important. So when people get into and start to learn about the history of Freemasonry, they're a little bit surprised because uh, the book of Freemasonry that was written by Albert Mackey in the 1800s, one of the sort of most famous Freemasons of the 1800s. I think um, Pike would be alongside of it, but yeah. Mackey was a historian. He was really connected to the old Polychronicon. If people haven't heard about that, that is the old oral traditions that he put some of the history down from that. Not all of it is written down or available, although I, I, you know, I understand you can get a Polychronicon for a lot of money, but I doubt whether it's the complete version because that's held by the adept levels. So this history goes back to before the flood. This history goes back to Adam with the knowledge that he learns in Eden, which we get by deducing it because in Eden, you have Adam first created by himself. Eve comes is created later, but he is to name like all of these animals, um, both hunters and vegetarians, right? Carnivorous ones and, and vegetarians. And this is this huge space of land. This has orchards in it. It has rivers running through it. There's irrigation that's going on. There is um, fields, there's ranches. There's all of these different things. And he's taught knowledge by God to run this because there's only him. Yeah. <laughs> and we're not told that he's getting an army of angels, a host of angels to, to give no. him a hand. <laughs> yeah. and, and so it would take knowledge to do that. That's the inference that you would walk away that the Masons would base their belief on. And of course, after they get ostracized from Eden, uh, Eve and Adam, they have Cain and Abel. And of course, Cain kills Abel, and then Seth is born uh, some 130 years later or so. And so you have this knowledge that Adam taught to Abel, to Cain, and then to Seth, but Cain is ostracized and sent away east of Eden. And he 
has this knowledge that Adam taught to him because he was an adult at some point. Uh, we don't know how old of an adult, but he's an, he's an adult. And so he has this knowledge and then he finds a wife, which is a rabbit hole. I'm not going to go down right now, um, oh. but he finds a wife <laughs> and <laughs> okay. go ahead. he has a son named Enoch, Enoch who he teaches this knowledge to. And it's this yes. raw knowledge. And so Enoch, and if people need to have their memories slightly refreshed, there are two Enochs in Genesis. One is the first son of Cain, and one is the son of Jared on the Sethian line. And the Sethian Enoch is the holy one. And of course, Enoch being son of Cain, he is somebody that I call Enoch the evil in my book, just to keep yeah. them sort of separate and he's taught all of this knowledge and enoch separates this knowledge into the seven sacred sciences mm. we know as the seven liberal arts today yes. and they have an agenda there uh, to basically four major points one is to honor the pantheon of their gods that cain is going to now worship that's the fallen angels and the second one is to lead people away from god just as he has rebelled from god and is basically holding a grudge against God as you get again from the inference of all the evil things that he's doing uh, that you learn about Cain and not only is he trying to lead people away from God but the the knowledge that they're going to use is going to be used to not give God credit for anything and to degrade God so if you think mm. That's similar to what goes on in the university say that's sure. not by coincidence right that so they de Enoch develops this knowledge and puts it down into 36,525 books and becomes the most important patriarch for ancient masonry, which is the old Royal Masonic uh, organization. And wow, See, I've after, never, I, haven't after heard, creates, I haven't heard this before, Gary. This is good. This is good. So the seven sacred sciences came from Enoch, Cain's son. I heard yeah, you talk yes. about the seven sacred sciences on the Jesuit episode, and I Actually, I wrote all those down and I was studying all that stuff. So, okay. So that, that's, that's very interesting. I've never, I haven't heard that yet. So do mystics, do mystics have to be involved in that or are they involved? Yes. In that? Like, yes. yes. So what Cain decides and probably with Enoch, Enoch is the one who's credited for is that this knowledge is too important for the mundane. And of course they would look at the mundane as being the Sethites and yeah. or people that aren't of the immediate sort of royal bloodline of Cain and Enoch as civilization is being developed. And so they're going to put that, this knowledge into mystery schools and mystical religions, mystery, mysticism, all the same word. That's why they're, they're connected. And you're going to have three degrees at the sort of the lowest level of mysticism. Right, it's go way higher than that. I'm not sure how many there are. I know of about probably seven. I've been told there's nine, 13. Some people say that even more than that. So, uh, however, there is there's this endless sort of list. But they're going to develop a religion to protect it in secrecy, rituals, and allegories, so that the mundane doesn't get the information, so that they can communicate it the way that they want. Unless you're an adept, you're not going to have the true meanings to the allegories. Mm. And so this is then going to be taught to the noble elite of the developing society. And they're gonna create mystery schools to develop specific attributes 
of the seven sacred sciences. And they're gonna have secret societies attached to sort of each that are designed to do specific aspects. Just as today, all of the secret societies have a specialized portion of the seven sacred sciences that they specialize in. So the fifth science, which is geometry, sounds pretty plain, but it's also known in the craft as masonry from which they get the building from. And the, the knowledge that Enoch eventually developed is accredited by the masons to have been the science and the technology to build the pyramids, which mm. again, I'll just sort of leave that there for, for, for a minute. And so <laughs> this oh, knowledge as it's being developed is developing at a fast rate and only for the elite class. And at that time, as they're honoring and worshiping the fallen angels, the gods in polytheism, whether it's Baal, son of El, and Zeus, son of Kronos, and on and on and on, the, the pantheon of gods, they are going to get closer and closer to the fallen angels who are governing the earth at this time. So very early on, Enoch is in very close association with the fallen angels known as the Watchers, also known as the Sons of God in Genesis 6. Mm. And so they're going to teach him and civilization the illicit knowledge from heaven that he Enoch is going to develop. And then this knowledge partners with the creation of the giants in Genesis 6 in the sixth generation in the days of Noah. And the giants are going to usurp all of the kingships in the world. The Canaanites are going to intermarry into them. And the secret societies are going to very quickly become the blo royal bloodlines of the elite that are working in these royal Masonic orders to develop this knowledge, whether it's for weaponry or whatever, and to control the mundane. And so that's the beginning of secret societies. Um, and they find a way, and we can come back to that because I know you've probably got a thousand questions. Uh, this organization does cross the flood, but that's how it begins. And their biggest patriarchs are uh, Lamech of the line of Cain. And understand there's also uh, a Lamech of uh, the, the Sethian line as well. So a lot of similar names, Jubal, Jubal, Nama, Tubal Cain, and obviously Cain. Those are their first and foremost honored patriarchs of Freemasonry. Okay, so you're talking about the bloodlines. Okay, so the bloodlines that I've been studying, I don't know if I'm, I'm on point here. I'm not on point. Uh, some of them, these are not, uh, wouldn't be called royal, but they're, you know, like the Astor bloodline, the Bundys, the Collins, the DuPonts, the Freeman, the Kennedys, the Lees, the Onassis, the Rockefellers, the Russell, the Von Dunn, the Merovinian, and the Rothschilds. That's 13 that I, that I was studying through. Yeah, that, that's through not the, le the legitimate 13. Okay, okay. But they are. No, you know what? That's why I need. That's why I yeah. need you. <laughs> they are all sort of part of the bloodlines, right? Okay. And understand that th these bloodlines have to be old because they uh -huh. go back into prehistory, and even if you just take it back to the flood. So, the American families—you've heard the name pseudo blue blood. Okay. That's yes. who they are. The American families are very low in the bloodline or non-bloodline who, because they're wealthy or have been invited, um, 
have come into the secret society so that they can intermarry with bloodlines to ennoble their offspring going forward to have a larger position. Okay. So the second thing to remember is that if a family, a modern family name is really, really well known, let's say like the Rothschilds, mm-hmm. then they're not going to be part of the Royal I Masonic know. original 13 <laughs> because they're the ones out there that are visible. They're not yes. this is the one, the, the, the real ones are going to be sort of in behind the, uh, the curtain, so to speak. They're the wizards behind the uh, curtain. So okay. when we look at the Merovingians, that's a different ballgame. That is an yeah. important bloodline. That is the source of a lot of bloodlines and one and was the most ennobled bloodline of its time. Mm-hmm. And so if you sort of roll forward from the last of the Merovingians, which was Dagobert, and according to Masonic history is Dagobert survives and produces offspring. And by the time of the creation of the Knights Templar, which is are all Royal Masons and elite, there's two Cistercian monks, but this is another rabbit hole, but these are Gnostic Royal that are in the Catholic church and understand that the Royals controlled all of the religions all of the time because they're the educated elite. They control the seven sciences, even after the flood. So (laughs) They control all of that. So two Cistercians and the rest are royal bloodlines. And three of particular note are Anjou, um, de Payan, and de Bouillon. Okay. And they're all from the Lorraine district. And so when you hear about the cross of Lorraine, and that double mm-hmm. cross is a symbol of, of their bloodlines that goes back to Dagobert of the Merovingians. And mm. that goes back into history to Raphaim and Nephilim bloodlines and other bloodlines that are that are grafted in. And so another family to keep in mind, and I won't go through through all 13. And there's no matter what there, it's hard to narrow it down which 13. I put 13 in the book that yeah. I got from some of the occult writings, but um, there are other names as well. And these are just the Western families, but the this the St. Clairs which become uh, transliterated into Scotland for the Sinclairs, which are going to be the founders of Freemasonry. St. Clair, Henry de St. Clair was a battle partner to Hugh de Payon in the Crusades. And one of the non-listed members in, in the original um, or organization founders of the Knights Templar. And mm. his bloodline goes back to Rollo. So when Rollo, expropriated Normandy in 9-11, I believe, or 9-12, and settled with the King of France, they did the Treaty of St. Clair. So the Rollo clan changed their name to St. Clair. So that's one you have to keep in mind. And the Rollo clan also produced the, 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 uh, the Bruces, which is Robert the Bruce of the Scottish dynasty and they also produced William the Conqueror I'm not texting I'm writing notes William the Conqueror who conquered England back to bring it back into the bloodlines and take it away from the Saxons in 1066 and so that's you know a significant bloodline that people have to keep in mind and you have the Lorraine name that's part of the Habsburgs right so you have that Anjou bloodline 
that creates the Habsburg Lorraine dynasty, which is a significant name. So if you're wanting to follow some of the European major bloodlines, you can follow a lot of that through the King wasn't of Marie, Jerusalem. Wasn't Marie Antoinette uh, part of the Habsburgers? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, okay. That's, I'm, I heard that somewhere. And that's yep, cool. that's absolutely true. And I and I put and I've got that note in my book as well for people. So uh, you also have the uh, so if you want to follow the bloodlines, I think is what where where I was uh, had left off is try and follow the King of Jerusalem title, okay. which is currently held by the Bourbon family, which is an offshoot of the Habsburg Lorraine dynasty, who also held the King of Jerusalem title, just as the Anjou family did. So you've got bloodlines that are intersecting in there that you have to follow. So the King of France, not King of France, the King of Spain today, um, King Philippe, son of Juan Carlos, who also was also King of Jerusalem, are the current holders of that title. Okay, and they're part of the. Are they part of the Order of Garter? All these, all these uh, bloodlines that you're talking about? Because I've, I've, I've actually looked up. Uh... I've looked up and seen everybody that's part of that. And it's most of the Royal, you know, Royal people right now. And then the yes, and that's and Prince Charles is actually uh, supposed to be on top of all that, you know? Well, exactly. So, but understand that each of the Royal bloodlines of the true bloodlines are going to have their own sort of hierarchy of Royal Masonic orders. So yes, that is one of them. Another one would be, and you'll like this name, this is from the, uh, the Norse, uh, bloodline family, their Royal Masonic order is Knights of the Seraphim, which are the fiery serpent faced dragon angels. Seraphim. And, okay. I, yeah. I got some studying to do guys. Cause Gary's coming out with some, some hard hitting. He's crushing it. I, I haven't heard of any of this yet. So obviously I need to get your book and, and, uh, and read it and study it, you know? Um, so, so, right, so obviously the uh, the Hanovers, which are the Windsors, and they changed their name in World War One from Hanover to um, Windsor, is another one of those significant bloodlines. So the point of the matter is, without going through all of them, and there there are more uh, important names in there. I mean, De Geezer is 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 another one to keep in mind, and but they're not visible except for basically the Queen of England. Right. Yeah. Because they're still holding that power. The, the others are still working in, 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 in the background. So their, their names aren't going to be at the tips of people's tongues, but they're the old families and they have the genealogies that they keep that go back into the mists of time. Wow. So, so you have like Prince Charles, who's on record and you can Google it and you can pull up the articles uh, and his quotes, he takes his bloodline not only back to the Hanovers of Germany and also has, you know, the, they have uh, obviously uh, Stuart bloodline uh, in them as well from the Stuart Unicorn Dynasty, which is another huge allegory for bloodlines and was the most ennobled bloodline since the Merovingians. Mm-hmm. But they, he also traces his bloodline back to Vlad the Impaler. Yeah, I've heard that. Who Dracula is based on. <laughs> yeah, and that. that you know, Dracul and A is a son for a dragon. And he takes his bloodlines back to the Tuatha de Danan of Scythia, 
shortly after the flood, and he had that typical noble Celt, noble Tuatha Danan, or noble Tuatha Danu, as in the god Ant Anu, um, red hair, hazel eye, pale skin, and was educated at the Mystery School of Solomon in Austria. And uh, so, I mean, this and it, it really gets deep, right? So. Yes. What about the what about the Orsini family? What what where do they lie lie on here? Sure. That's that's more of the Roman black nobility. Um, yeah. I, and I've I've like studied them recently, and I'm like, they stop at like 1737, like with, with their popes and their bishops. It's like it stopped all of a sudden. So how where do they fit in the Orsini family? Well, the Orsini and a few other of the black nobility. Obviously, that's Italian nobility. There's a greater back yeah. black nobility that covers all of Europe. They use that name, and I also use Rex Deus. But Rex mm -hmm. Deus is typically used more for the northern uh, bloodlines. And Rex Deus means kings of God. Yeah. Rex Deus, some people might pronounce it. So, um, so they go back to the, the Caesar... Augustan bloodlines and the senators before Caesar made it into a, a Caesarship and a dictator or a royal family, they were all royal bloodlines back to their gods. Mm -hmm. wow. So they were the noble elite. So that's just, again, there's, so there's those bloodlines that are important to remember in there as well. And the black nobility um, was responsible early on, and, and as you say, not up to a couple hundred years or so for having basically almost all royal bloodlines as popes. Yes, I saw that. It's just there's bishop after bishop after pope after pope, just yeah. Yeah. all the way. Borgia, up. the Borgia family would be a classic example. And uh, Borgia, I think there was three Borgia popes, and there's a Borgia in the time of the fall of the Knights Templar in 1307. And he is the grand master of the Contessa order uh, for the King of Spain. So it's a Royal Masonic order from a bloodline of popes. And this is the order that the King of Spain says, we're going to take over the Templar assets so the church doesn't get it <laughs> that are in Spain. And Shortly thereafter, um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, it's the wrong. I got Borgia in the wrong year, but that's the that's the that's the Montessa order that takes over the Templar assets. So roll that forward to the 1500s, and Borgia becomes grandmaster for the the Contessa order. And in 1523, he starts to sponsor Ignatius of Loyola mm. to the Jesuits. For the Jesuits, which will come wow. to you know get an order in 1537. By yeah. 1570, Borgia is the third leader of the Jesuits as wow. a royal Masonic order. And not only were they chartered in the beginning to take over the seminary schools to do the teaching, but they were also in control of the banking. Wow. Yeah. See, they got control cool. over it shortly after. And so yeah. they got the Vatican banking and then they moved that to Switzerland. Yes. <laughs> so where, they, I know they did, well, they did where yeah. the wealth, most of the wealth in terms of the cash of the Knights Templar had gone previous to that because you had the Knights of St. John or the Knights of Rhodes. They're known by two or three different names throughout the history, which is a Catholic order like the Templars with that white cross. And they had established the banking there through the Templar cash, who the Templars were the first of the modern bankers. 
And we're already well established in Switzerland, which was protected by the mountains so that nobody could sort of invade and get at that cash. And they set up modern banking. So they've consolidated all of that. And then outside the bank, the secret societies uh, set up the Rothschilds, who were originally the Bauer family by name in Germany. And they changed their name to Rothschilds when they set up the London Bank in 1810 to 1812. And then that has now moved to Switzerland. So all that banking is now centralized inside and outside the church in Switzerland. And that's why you have the white cross on the Swiss flag. Wow. <laughs> so see, I, you can just crush it with all this information. And just one question leads to all these gems and, and jewels. I, I love that. It's, that's so awesome for you to do, man. And everybody, everybody has the question of, of, you know, cause we've had people on that are, that are, I think maybe they're seventh day Adventists or something, but they're just fully like, Jesuits control everything. The black Pope and the white yeah. Pope control everything. And then I've, I studied the Royal family, the order of garter and, and the Illuminati. And I'm like, dang, I have people over here saying that that's who rules everything. And you're in your humble opinion, <clears throat> you know, going through all this research that you've gone over, um, who do you feel is at the top? You know, the Royal family, they, they own like 6.6 billion acres of land. The, the Catholic church owns like 1.77 acres of land, million acres of land. Like who do you feel is, uh, is, is really calling the shots, for example, the heads of the 13 families. So below that is the council of 33. Yes. And below that is the committee of 300. And then you have yes. the Rosicrucians, which is the crossover between the pure bloods, which is dominated by pure bloods at the top level and then rising ones through Freemasonry, Illuminati and into the Rosicrucians at the bottom of, of that order. So that here's where you want to sort of understand kind of how this sort of fits in. Mm -hmm. So that number 33 from the council of 33, that comes from the 33 invisible ones. These are the heads of the 33 families that were overseeing the Priory of Sion and the Knights Templar organizations, which were one until 1188, until they split at the cutting of the elms at the, the Geezer Castle in Normandy, because mm. they had lost uh, Jerusalem at that time. And the upper Masonic order had thought that the Templar order had lost their way. I mean, number one, losing Jerusalem, number two, not fulfilling what their, their agenda was, and they're just too focused on banking and power. And so you have, after the fall of the Knights Templar, you have 33 invisible ones that form a group, and they're going to sit down with the Pope and say, we want to restart the Knights Templar. Mm. And yeah. the Pope agrees to it, but he says, but you're not going to lead it. We're going to have our nobility sitting that was going to lead it inside the church. And, and they said no to that. So they went sort of underground as the uh, 33 invisible ones. And by the way, that's why the invisible college is also another name for the Royal College, because it was started mm -hmm. by Rosicrucians and Freemasons. And I'll connect those dots in a second. So the 33 invisible ones uh, are the Rosicrucians at that time. Mm. Okay. Right. But they're going to sort of make a, what they're going to do is they're going to make a, a fully hierarchical organization through the families higher than that, keep pure bloods within the Rosicrucians. And so at the time of, Ignat, of, uh, of Ignatius of Loyola and Borgia, 
who is a Royal Masonic order and one of the Spanish Royal orders of, of, of Masonic bloodlines. Um, they are going to obviously take over the, uh, over the, the, the Jesuits and it's the Rosicrucian order that sort of is set up by this, uh, this invisible 33 that are going to be the ones promoting and working with Borgia and Ignatius to set up the Jesuits within the Catholic Church to replace the Templars and do the same goals that they had before. And they are called within the craft, the new Templars, within the church. So who are they going to answer up to? They're going to answer up to probably the committee of 300. Some people think the top level of the Rosicrucians, but I think up through the black nobility, as you identified in yeah. uh, Italy, and then into the committee of 300 families. Yes. Okay. So uh, now the council of 33, some people are saying that uh, they, they, they're like the highest uh, in, in America, right? Are those, oh, that's all over the world, right? The, the Council of 33 is all bloodlines all over the world, right? No. I thought they were the top of the Freemasons in, 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 uh, in Washington or D.C. or something is where they all. So this, maybe I'm wrong. This hierarchy is the Western European hierarchy that, you know, takes under its wing North America. And, mm -hmm. okay. But you have royal bloodlines all over the world. Yes. Right. And okay. they have different organizations. I'm not sure how many there are, but yeah. I'll give you one example for sure. That's pretty easy for people to identify. And they have a strong, strong history of famous secret societies that would work with the secret societies in the West as equals. And that is the Chinese. So the Shaw dynasty takes their creation back to the dragon creators, both before and after the flood. These are seraphim angels, serpent-faced angels. And they start the Shaw dynasty, which produces all of the Chinese dynasties coming out of that, and which are spawning a lot of the royal dynasties in Southeast Asia, and even the Yamamoto dynasty, which is another significant royal bloodline in Japan. Which this, this ends <laughs> off of the uh, uh, the Lee dynasty, and so the name Lee is basically a modern translation for the Shaw dynasty. There's a couple of different okay. branches as it goes forward, and Xi Pin today, the Xi goes back to XI or XIA, which is the Shaw dynasty. That's okay. the royal bloodlines. And okay. they have secret societies that work at the same level as the secret societies in the West. And my understanding is, and they also like to call themselves the red dragon bloodline, by the way, in the East, wow. another interesting term. And they have, I'm not sure how many bloodlines that they would have below the top, but my understanding is, is that there are 13 of the top world bloodlines around the world. And I don't think there's 13 groups, but they would probably each area might supply, let's say one, two or three. Uh, but you've also got other royal families that are in like India, like the, the Singhs and the Khans. And, yeah. and you've got the from South America and Central America. You know, most people think that when the Spanish and the Portuguese 
came across that they eliminated the royal bloodlines. They only chopped off the head of the king that was ruling at the time. And by 1525, both the Portuguese king and the Spanish king had reinstated the families that were running, whether it's the Incas or the Aztecs or the Kishamaya, back to their status. And then they started to intermarry with them. Yeah. And so that you have the Roca family as, for example, out of uh, South America. And there are, um, you know, several bloodline families from Central America as, as well. So it's hard to figure out all of that because that's not quite as clear as we get for the picture here, but they work together in, on, in an, a sort of an underground world government. Yes. Which, and then, so, I mean, that's like in the Bible, we're talking about like the one world government. Uh, like a lot of people that I talk to that, that are common folk that don't understand any of this stuff. They're just base level. They're not, they don't understand when I tell them that like, as we, well, they could see it now with how this Corona is going, like how it's like a one world government all working together, but it's, um, so that's like a, what that's like the one world government that's happening basically right now. It's just with, it's all set up already and they got everything in place, ready to go. They got all the, all the bloodlines, all the families, their leader, uh, you know, Satan giving them the orders, the fallen angels also giving them the orders. Yeah. You think it's pretty set up right now and ready to go. I mean, as far well, as how they're ruling they would like to bring it on sooner than later. Yeah. Uh, and they're always over optimistic at how close they are. Yeah. So, you know, you go back to the Bush speeches of a thousand points of light. I mean, yeah. that represents the world coming together in their allegory. And that's the spark of the divine, the spark of the fallen angels that were was reproduced in the bloodlines that they want to bring back together. So they can have this harmonic convergence into godhood again and, and establish the new age. And is, is, so uh, is that like maybe kind of regaining their Ocaterium? Maybe because they sh- I was I'm stuck on the, how they shed that to get to that point. I'm sorry to bring up some of this, but I'm just like, how did they shed that Ocaterium to learn how to have sex with women, how to, how to mate with women and how to, how to, uh, cause they were angels didn't have, uh, reproductives. They were there, they're, they're eternal. So they, they'll be on forever. So why they didn't need to procreate. So why, how did, why did they, cause the devil was kicked out. He was, he was, he, he God kicked him out. Uh, but then he came to earth like lightning and, and, but how did they shed that? That's, 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 I would say like through your studies, did you ever, ever come across of like any stories of anything that, that might, how they talked about how they, maybe they even taught that type of way, because we're taught our way by believing in Jesus Christ and uh, having faith that we will gain that Ocaterium later on in life and, and have that, have that, uh, that uh, reborn into. Uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, and I like the term that you're using Ocaterium and that is only shows up twice in the New Testament. Yeah, that's in 2 Corinthians 2, 5, uh, for a house in heaven, um, which is a dwelling place. And just as Jesus promised many rooms in his mansion, you could link it with that. And with habitat or habitation, where the fallen angels left their habitation in Jude 1, 6, that's the word oikotarian. And that mm. it has a definition of dwelling place for the spirit. And it's a very important term if you're going to understand how fallen angels are were able to procreate with human females in the physical world angels are spirit beings 
from a spirit world in another dimension in heaven just as god is spirit and just as the word was spirit before he became flesh and so they left that habitation they left that oiketarian that dwelling place for the spirit so just as you have a body uh and a dwelling place not a body but a dwelling place in heaven where you interact in the spirit realm if you you can come into the physical world but you can't really totally interact because you're spirit right so to fully interact in the physical world you need to have an oiketarian you need to have a dwelling place in the physical world for your spirit we're taught in the new testament that you have a body you have a soul and you have a spirit and only God and Jesus can separate the spirit from the soul because that comes from heaven. Mm -hmm. And so that's a dwelling place for the spirit in the physical world is the body and the soul. And so if you're going to have a spirit being take a physical form, and we know they can because they show up as men in the Bible in the Old Testament and many other forms, but just to do a quick example in the story of the angels that go to visit with Abraham, they're not even recognized as angels in the beginning and they, they can touch, they can talk, they can interact, they eat, they drink, they walk, they touch. And those angels that go to the Sodom, uh, city after visiting with abraham to bring judgment on sodom they're recognized as men but also as angels and they're physical and they and the people are wanting to have sex with them whether or not they want them to change strange flesh that's strange strange flesh yeah and strange can mean because of same sex or perhaps they were thinking that they could change their physical characteristics to become female to have sex with them and they would have been familiar with sodom and gomorrah with the raphaim who were produced after the flood by the second tier gods that replaced the impassioned ones that went to the abyss so baal would replace el in the canaan um pantheon and they would have gone to the abyss after as well but anyway so we know that they can create a physical body and interact and we get lots of other cases through the bible as they're men and other different forms and they're interacting in the world so they have the ability to create a physical body to hold that spirit from heaven so that they can interact and if they can do that then they can pass on their dna Mm-hmm. which is how they're able to create the you know the seed to produce offspring with human females who have superhuman traits because of that counterfeit spirit which is why in genesis 6 3 one of the verse that you read earlier god limits the were the uh, age to 120 years for yeah. whether it's going to be demigods or um humans thereafter it's not noah's commission because the math doesn't work yeah, because right. if you look it's only 100 years from the time of the birth of them going on of the sons till the time where they go on the uh ark when when noah is 600 so it and the bible's not inaccurate so the math well, i thought work. i thought it was 120 years it was going to take from that moment on for for noah to build the ship and that was going to be the last part of their 120 like it's going to be 120 years and he was going to have the flood after yeah. that but yeah. I, I don't know, but there's a I've lot got of a, gap theory. I, there's a lot of different yeah, things that go on. Yeah, I've got a great document for people that can walk you through biblically on it. 
just as I've got document on the Jesuits we were talking about earlier, or the Cross of Lorraine, or so much of the things that we're talking Dude, about. Please uh, so send people, that stuff. <laughs> people send want that to stuff, just get a hold of me. <laughs> yeah, and, but name it my sure. topic, because I'll forget yes. what documents I promised on what show. I get a lot of I get a lot of email that comes in, but just get hold of me through my website and um, name the document. I'll send it to you. So when we look at what's going on here with that Oikotarian, that starts to make a whole lot of sense when you're looking at the bodiless spirits of these counterfeit uh, spirits that were put in the original Nephilim, because they were able to have that body live forever, just like the spirit. And by the way, when it, when in that document where I'll talk about this in terms of Genesis 6, 3, the 120 years, I'll take that back to Hebrew for people so they can get the meanings of the words. It's got nothing to do with Noah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this counterfeit spirit um, is still going to be uh, immortal because it's the spirit that was passed on from their fathers. But the body's going to die now. So that spirit is not going to be able to go to sleep like humans do. And it's not going to be permitted to go into heaven. I have a great document on demons if people want and how we know the demons are the bodiless spirits of giants. And it's all biblical. And you roll that forward to the time of Jesus and he's dealing with the demons. Yeah. Who are afraid that he's going to send them to the abyss or the lake of fire before their time. And Legion is the classic one, but he's, he's depossessing people all the time. And these are these bodiless spirits of, of demons because the only way they can interact is to have an oikotariot. There's also, they've um, lost it. So they have, they, have, you know, they have to possess a human to interact in the world. Yeah. And that's not a symbiotic relationship because it already has a host spirit. So you got that internal war that's going on. And so they're roaming, as Jesus describes them, they are like in dry places. They are thirsty for rest and to be able to interact. So you roll that forward to the end time and the technology that we're developing, I think is going to create clone-like oikotarians for these demon spirits so that they can interact in those bodies in the end time. Now, now let's also look at just so that people really understand the full context of this. And I have a great document on soul, body, and spirit as well. If people want it, no charge on any of the documents. I just get a hold of me. I'll send it to you. If you look at the word that became flesh, the word is spirit, but he's going to become flesh, but he doesn't become flesh in the illegal violation against the laws of creation as how the Nephilim were created. The Holy spirit is going to come upon Mary who's a virgin and is going to implant and do what the Holy spirit needs to do to create the body and the spirit, because the spirit is, gives life to everything to create the oikotarian for Jesus to come in and interact in the world in a physical way. That's beautiful. Makes sense. That's so awesome. Hey, that, that really hit home. Okay. Can, um, let me ask you a question. So uh, I, I was listening to, to uh, Pastor Chuck Missler, and what he was saying is he believes that the demons are the Nephilim when they died in the flood. I kind of similar to kind of what you were saying. He believes that that is the spirits of the Nephilim because they weren't able to be saved, and they and they ended up becoming 
you know, demons. And then the yeah. fallen angels and demons are two separate things. People get that confused that demons are the same thing as fallen angels, but the third that fallen angels, that's, that's different yeah. than demons, right? Yes, totally different. So, and they're classified as, and they're described as you take that back to Greek. It could be evil spirits. Um, it can be devils in, in the new Testament. And that goes back to the Greek word daemon for demon and it's yeah. different. And when Satan is called the devil, it goes back to the Greek word diablos, mm -hmm. which is a different word. That's why it's important to get the full meaning sometimes at a Greek and they don't get confused with diablos and daemon in, yeah. in the Greek. So, you know, the differences between it and other angels in the new Testament they're called whether they're loyal or not, like excusia or dunamis and, and words like that, which is part of that hierarchy, because a host of heaven is the Hebrew word Saba, which is an army. And so it's an army, both the loyal and the rebellious ones, depending on who they're loyal to. And there's a hierarchy. And that's when you understand that they're, they're like an army and there's rank. When I talked about the offspring gods in polytheism taking over for the parent gods because those parent gods disappear. Those are the ones before the flood. And then like the Baalim show up after the flood or Zeus or Osiris or Anki and Anilil because they all had parent gods who had disappeared. And in polytheism, it is a rebellion, but and they mm. killed them, but you can't kill immortal beings. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. All that stuff that you just said right now is just—it's it's, blowing—it's blowing our minds, and it's—it's it's really on point, and it really uh, describes. This is cool because you are perfect for the show. We're a Christian and conspiracy podcast, so you are like the perfect guest that we can have. <laughs> to honest, hey, go ahead, bro. I think you were going to ask something. I didn't no, want to uh, because uh, in Psalms, in, in Psalms, uh, I think twenty-two, it says, uh, "The strong bulls of Bashan encompass me; they they surround me." And Og, the king of Bushan, was a giant, and Bushan was a place that had that had cattle. It was known for cattle, but but it, it, it was it. I think it speaks of more of a demonic presence that was that was there that turned. You know, it, it, it's a lot, a lot of this stuff because people understand that giants aren't just mentioned in Genesis six; they're scattered throughout the whole Old Testament. And if you go through and read it really closely, you'll find spots in in areas where they were they were rampant and that type of bloodline was going through. So. It is 100% could be like this all could be very, very, very true. And, and I also believe it as well. Like the, the, just because God didn't finish annihilating these people, Joshua couldn't do it. Uh, 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 Saul couldn't do it. Saul didn't do it. Uh, David didn't. No, no one. They didn't completely wash the blush the, the blood of these people out of the existence. They, they, they defied God in some way and they somehow became still became you know, still around, like you said, they just, they just hovered around and then boom, they, they start becoming, they start intermingling and they start spreading. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and Og is said to be three times the last of the giants. And now that's a different word for giant um, that's used in that application. And in fact, the word Nephilim or Nephil, which is the root Hebrew word, and I am is the male plural. So you had seraph or seraphim, cherub, cherubim. It means ones or a plural thereof. Mm -hmm. And so Nephilim only shows up in Genesis 6, 4. 
and then two times in Numbers 13.33 where the Anakim are called uh, giants, the sons of the giants, and that's the word Nephilim. That's the embellishment evil part of the report as opposed to the accurate part of the report that is being detailed earlier. Um, and Deuteronomy 1, 40 years later, as told by Moses, Moses reconfirms all of the details as being not the Nephilim in Numbers 13.33, because Anakim are giants in Deuteronomy 2, but that's the word Rapha for Raphaim, just as Rapha, Raphaim is the word that is the root word for King Og. We actually get Raphaim a few times in in the King James Version Bible, where it's like the Valley of the Rephaim, that's the Valley of the Giants. Or uh, when you have the War of Giants in Genesis 14, that includes the Rephaim in the Mount Hermon area, and it also has Emim, and it has uh, uh, yeah, Zamzumim's in Deuteronomy 2, but it's got the Zuzim, and it's got the... Uh, the Horim, yeah, the Horim are in there, the Amalekim are in there, and the Malachim are different than the Amalekites, because the Amalekites aren't born until Genesis 36, and this is Genesis 14, and those giants are already there in the, in the War of Giants, and so uh, you've got these, these giant names that are, you know, in there that when they're called a giant, except for those three places, twice in Numbers 13.33 and once in Genesis 6.4, it goes back to the Raphaim. The Raphaim are the post-Diluvian giants and they're distinct, probably a little bit smaller. Yeah. But that's because when you look at uh, what's done in Genesis 6.3, they're losing a lot of sort of attributes, not all, but they're, they're thought to be smaller. So King Og- down the wine. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you don't have that immortal spirit. Um, mm. But that doesn't mean that that spirit can't be captured and put into the abyss, because in Ezekiel 32, you have these Nephilim or Rephaim or both spirits locked in the sides of the cell alongside the abyss. And they're talking mm. to Pharaoh. And these are the terrible ones that were slain. And uh, Isaiah 25 also talks about uh, the, the terrible ones in, in Isaiah 14. And these terrible ones are the ones who did terrible things to human beings while they on, were on the earth and who were slain and their spirits were sent down into the cells along the abyss. That's in the last sort of half of Ezekiel 32, if people are looking for that. So the Raphaim are some, somehow distinct. So the bed of Og, was nine cubits, as it's put in the Bible. This is yes. King Og. This isn't yeah. a mundane peasant Og. This is King Og, last of the Raphaim. Mm. And nine cubits, if you're using a common cubit, is 18 inches, but a royal cubit would be 21 inches. So he's king. He's probably measured on 21 inches. But either way, mm. it's going to be 14 and a half to 16 feet long, and it's made of metal because wood mm. would not hold his weight. Wow. And just as, as in Isaiah 25, you're talking about these strong ones that are part of the terrible ones. And that goes back to the Hebrew word as and as as, which means stout as in strong. And mm. it's also part of the word for azazel. Um, oh, wow. That's, a, that's <laughs> right? in Enoch. That, that's in yeah. Enoch. Hey, and Gary, I got to go my, because uh, they my, were. Go Listen, just, well, just exit, bro. It's okay. I'll, I'll finish with yeah. Gary. Don't yeah. worry about it. All right, cool. Yeah. 
Right. Nice to meet you again, Gary. I'll, I got to get rolled out of here and I got my son's football game. Sorry, man. Yeah. Have fun. Okay. Have fun. Thank you. So the Nephilim and the Rephaim, at least from the Rephaim perspective, were at least twice as wide as humans. So whereas humans mm. would have a three to one height to width ratio is the post-Diluvian giants were thought to have a two to one. Wow. So, okay. and so if the bed is 14 and a half to 16 feet tall and it's a, and it's four cubits wide, that's six to seven feet wide. Yeah. He is going to be somewhere between, you know, 12 to 15 feet tall. Yes. Right. Yeah, I, and, and Goliath was six cubits in a span. And this is 400 years after that. Yes. And that, that works out to somewhere between nine feet, nine inches and yeah. 11 feet three inches depending on which cubit they're using and he was a gittite and i think he was the king of gath that's why he yeah. took five pebbles because mm -hmm. he thought he was going to have to kill all five kings of the philistine pentapolis at His that brothers, time right? not that he thought he was going to miss <laughs> yeah yeah so and goliath who is a post-diluvian giant that is the king of Uruk, that some of the giant kings from genesis 14 from mesopotamia come from Uruk, and i got yeah. a great document on that for people um goliath was 11 cubits tall which would make him as a king over 19 feet tall wow, wow. and the nephilim before were taller still yes so and and i've heard a lot of people say like oh well, like my, my wife for example she's I keep telling her about this and she's like, well, there's no, there's no evidence of giants. So uh, every time that, that I hear that, that people are finding these, they're getting, they're getting by the Smithsonian, they're just getting taken and, and hidden, you know? So, so, cause it, cause it messes up with their evolutionary theory. And also it's proving, you know, Genesis six, correct. What do you think about that? Well, absolutely. And uh, whether or not it's the Royal society or it's the yeah. Smithsonian, or it is the Catholic Church. They've been doing yeah. it for the last 2,000 years. Yes. And in Josephus's time, um, giants were commonplace still. Yeah. Um, not yeah. as as their time of David. And he has excerpts in his book, and he describes them. And their whole bone was different and engineered differently than than humans. And they used to put them on display as. Uh, you know, as something to look at in, in wonder. Um, yeah. But there are accounts, and I put some accounts in my book for people of, of, of around that time. I mean, there's 10 feet or 11 feet tall. It was not uncommon. I mean, yes. it wasn't, they weren't like everywhere, but it wasn't uncommon. And so at the time of Josephus and at the time of, uh, and, uh, of Jesus, because he lived in Jesus' time, and understand mm -hmm. Josephus, was a Pharisees and a Sadducees and also lived amongst the Essenes for a while. So he understood all of the three sects. Yes. He also said that these giants were accurate and true in, in testimony that and that it was the common belief of the Jewish people of that time and the common, common belief of all cultures and historians yes. of that time all over the world. Yeah. And so hey. the... It, there, there is this, this, these records that go back into prehistory. And then you've got all of these ancient reliefs that mm -hmm. depict different sizes of giants. Some of them are gods, yes, but some of them are, are giants, like with the Amorites, mm -hmm. um, who are hybrid giants, not full 
scale giants, but hi hybrid Raphaim humans. So they would be what they would be called in some of the secular studies as the Shuza, which were six to nine feet tall. So in Numbers 1333, in that report, and in Numbers 13 as a whole, you get a report of the Anakim kings, which are uh, Talmai, Sheshai, and Ahiman, and you get people who are described as living there and taller, which are like the Amalekites and the Amorites and a few other nations that, that are listed. These are the hybrids yes. that lived wow. and were ruled over by Raphaim kings. And so when now you go back to Genesis 10, and I'm surprised more people don't ask this question, but why don't nine of the 12 Canaanite clans have patriarchs? Yeah. Because that goes back to a Hebrew word, and it means basically family or species or a kind. And only if you have a human parent as a patriarch in the table of nations of 70 nations are you listed? So you get these nine that are listed without a patriarch. So mm -hmm. Canaan is the patriarch and we, we have his genealogy as, mm -hmm. as a Hamite. And he has two sons named Sidon and Heth and mm -hmm. they're named. But Arba, who is the father of the Anakim, isn't listed. Rapha oh. of the Raphaim isn't listed. Wow. Because the, right? they're not because they don't have human parents, right? Because half, half exactly. of the are not human. Yeah, wow, that's super interesting. Yeah, wow. so, and so those nine uh -huh. will have all Raphaim parents, and I'm going to cover that off in detail, and and try oh, and link cool. that back. And I do in in quite convincingly to who by the etymology of patronymic uh, study and patrial studies that you can take their names back. So like Amaru would be a Raphaim. And an offspring of Amr out of the Mesopotamian name for Baal, or some people say it's a separate god. I'll leave that for what people, how they want to believe that. But yeah. he would be uh, the Nephilim or the Raphaim parent for the Amorites, and which is why his name wouldn't be listed. Wow. So um, that's so interesting. And then I know like Native Americans also, like when they say how, they're looking for like the six finger. Uh, that's, yep. that's something I've heard. So they also have legends of giants and there's, they're all throughout history, you know, that, um, you know, they have a history of giants as well. So that's, so we're going to wrap up here. Uh, Gary, I was going to ask you, is it, is, is it cool if we have you back on like in November? Is, is that all right? I know that's soon, but maybe you can go over some other uh, stuff. We could, we could kind of think of a subject or something and maybe uh, it, Friday is your normal day to do a show or do you have other Friday days? or Saturday, you know, okay. Friday or Saturday. I will, good. I will send you. If there's any dates open for Friday or Saturday in November, I will send that to you. Thank and, you so uh, and much. I, I certainly do have ones available in December. I just have to, would have okay. to look at the calendar for uh, November. So no problem. Well, I, I, I appreciate you coming on. And honestly, I, I, uh, I was tracking you down for a while trying to find out how to get a hold of you. I was like, how am I going to get this gentleman on the show? He's like so perfect fit for the show. And uh, thank you so much for coming on, Gary. Um, I like to end the, the, the podcast in prayer always. Uh, but first, can you please tell them how to get a hold, uh, tell the people how to get a hold of you, how to get a hold of your book. And I'm definitely going to be ordering the book for sure. You and my brother sure. are going to study this book. So yeah. The best way to get a hold of me and to get a copy of the book is to go to my website. And that's uh, www.genesis6conspiracy.com. That's genesis6conspiracy.com with the number six. Okay. And, uh, 
If you go to my website, you'll get a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. So you'll get a good feel whether or not it's a book for you or not. And on the website, you can you click on contact the author. And so if you want to ask me a question, um, you can get a hold of me for that. If you want to get a document on the demons or uh, we know the sons of God are who they are and or on Oikaterian or, you know, almost everything that we were talking about today, you know, the cross of Lorraine, I've got a three-part series on that too. I've got the unicorn connection in there. Anyways, I'm going on too, too long here. Okay, but okay. You, name, name the document, get a hold of me. It might take me a week or so to get back to you but I will get back to everybody. And on the website, you can also get a signed copy. Uh, so you click on the buy now and you can click on for buy a signed copy and I can custom sign it for you or just do a standard signing. Uh, so you can buy it that way. You can also link over from my website to Amazon to the Kindle version and get the digital version if you're into digital books yes. and or over to amazon.com for the uh, hard copy or the, the written copy it's the soft cover book and or over to barnesandnoble.com and you can also get a hold of the book on almost any online bookstore if you wanted to support a local bookstore and i do encourage that they probably won't have it on the shelf but it's distributed by bookmasters in pennsylvania so they could order it in for you if uh, you wanted to support your local bookstore and you can also get a hold of me on Facebook that's the only social media I'm doing right now but I'll be adding more um, later in this year and in the next year as I start to settle out where I want to be on social media basis but <laughs> under Gary oh, Wayne it's, it's a tough decision and I pulled yes. out all the other ones and I just kept I <laughs> the one that I felt I needed to keep out there. Not that I'm supporting them, but that's Facebook. Uh, so you can get hold of me on Messenger or uh, on my timeline. You can post a question. Uh, and again, it may take me you know a week or so to get back to you, but I will get back to you. Thank you so much, Gary. And everybody that's listening, please go and, and, and purchase this book. Uh, please show him support. Me and him were talking off air and I'm an artist. Uh, I'm a musical artist and I know how hard it is to, to create, to put all this time and research and energy into something. And, you know, obviously he put his heart and soul into this and, and God led him to do this. So we need to please support gentlemen like, like Gary. Okay guys and purchase the book, but uh, I'd like to end this in prayer. Um, Father God, in the name of Jesus, thank you so much for connecting uh, Gary with us uh, this evening or this this afternoon. We really appreciate you, Lord. Uh, please, we just want to pray for uh, you know. Please help our our government to make the correct decisions, Lord. Uh, this is it's getting really hectic right now. Uh, we were speaking of the New World Order, and we were speaking of uh, you know Satan and and his 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 plan, Lord. We know you have the right plan. We know that you win in the end, and we really really appreciate you giving us uh, this time this podcast and giving us a clear connection. Thank you, God. We appreciate everything. Father God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Gary. Th thank you so much. I appreciate you. And, and definitely we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have to connect in, in November if we can. Yep. I'll send you some dates. <laughs>